0: Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Heavenly Father, I am keenly aware that for many of us in this room, um, this is not theoretical, Lord, but this is incredibly important and practical and necessary for our lives today. Our marriages are so beautiful and significant. And so many of our marriages need your help. And so Lord, I pray today that you would teach us from your word, not only what marriage is and what it's for, God, but that in your word and in your presence, we would experience a grace that covers shame and a profound power, Lord, to enable us to live not only our lives, but in our relationships with one another and our spouses and our families. But in a way that puts the image of God on display for all to see and accurately shows the world what you are like. God, so would you lead our time, bless this time, and lead this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In the human realm of relationships, there is no other topic that has potential for as much joy and as much grief as the topic of marriage. I've been keenly aware of this spectrum this week. On Thursday, my wife Katie and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. I feel like we're officially veterans now. Like we can say like we got something to say about marriage. And at the same time, as celebrating a a milestone in our life, I've had the the privilege and the opportunity to sit down with a number of couples who are preparing for marriage. And we've got several couples in our church that are excited about marriage. Many of you know Jen and Jonah and yeah, right? They they were over, oh, there they are, you know? And and, and Matt and Alyssa, another one that are getting married that you you guys know. Um, and then Eric and Sharon are other people that you guys know that, that are, are getting married. And if you're here and you're getting married, God bless you. Let's talk. Um, had the opportunity to sit down and celebrate these things with, with our, our family in Christ here at Reality Carpenteria. And at the same time, I have sat this week with people whose spouses have left them or are leaving them or left a long time ago. This is not theory, church. This is not pie in the sky, uh, uh, just a philosophical, you know, uh, ideas. This is very practical and very necessary and very significant for all of us. Whether you're here and you're married or you're here and you're not married, marriage is absolutely important for the church, for the people of God, for the mission of God in this world. Marriage is significant. This conversation is not theoretical. And as I've been praying for you and, and, and preparing to, to preach this, um, and as you, as you listen to this, we we see people, we see their faces in our minds, people that we love. We see our own marriages and our desperation for Jesus to enter into those relationships and breathe life. In addition to joy and sorrow, the topic of marriage can also make us feel incredibly uncomfortable. Maybe uh, you are a single person and the church has made you to feel like a second-class citizen every time we talk about marriage. Like you really don't have anything to offer the, the, the church community unless you're married and have kids. That's something that the American church has done. And, and it's not my intention to make you feel like a second-class citizen. Uh, I know we 've got you know high school students sitting with us, and marriage is the furthest thing from their minds or junior high students, and they still think cooties are a thing and so the conversation about marriage makes us uncomfortable. A little discomfort is okay it 's okay to be uncomfortable in church it 's okay to be uncomfortable. In scripture, it's okay to be uncomfortable when we hear a sermon. My wife and I do a lot of uh, DIY projects at home. And when you're sanding something, oftentimes you have to run your hand over the surface of what you're sanding to feel the rough spots so that you can bring the sandpaper to that and smooth it out. And when we read God's word or when we hear a sermon, we experience this conviction, we experience that discomfort. It's like God, you know, running his hand over the surface and identifying something that just needs to be. Sand it out. It's a a part of the spiritual formation process. And so if at any point you're uncomfortable in this moment, I just invite you to press in, press through the discomfort because there's good news on the other side of discomfort. God is transforming you, making you to look more like his son, his daughter. And so I want to begin with an invitation. Okay. If for any reason, this brings up something in your life, something in your heart, whether it is discomfort or anger or, or confusion or whatever it is, would you please reach out? Okay, I want to say this ahead of time. Would you please reach out? Adam at realitycarp.com. Okay, we live in a world that tells us that if something makes us uncomfortable, if something makes us unhappy, we can just bail. It's one of the reasons our marriages are in such trouble. We've been taught, this doesn't make me happy, bail. And it affects the church. Eh, I didn't like what he said, bail. But that's not how we need to respond. As one of your pastors, I give you my word. If there's something that you need to talk about, honestly, even if you just want to yell at me, okay, that's fine. I give you my word you will be heard. There's a place for you to come and sit down and be heard. If your marriage is in trouble, don't wait. Don't wait till it's too late. Your marriage is of utmost importance to your pastors at this church. And we will set aside lots of things to make sure that you get the care that your marriage needs. I want to say that in advance, okay? Please don't wait. The stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. Now, it's been a couple of months since we've been in Genesis, so I do want to back up and give some context for where we have been. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then on the sixth day, he makes humanity. And the humans were different than anything else in all of creation because nothing else in creation is said to have been made in the image of God. But the human beings were made in God's image. They were made to mirror God, to be a reflection of God so that all of creation, all of the world could look at the humans in the way that they ruled and subdued, in the way that they cultivated the the land. They were able to look at the humans and say, this is what our creator is like. This is what God is like. And that is a unique place that the humans have in God's creation to image God to the world. And then God rests on the seventh day. But then in our text, it zooms in. if you've ever tried to figure out what's the difference between Genesis 1 and and Genesis 2, because they're each telling a creation account, Genesis 2 zooms in on day six of creation and says, okay, how'd this happen? How'd this all play out? What did this this look like? And zooms in on man and woman. And so he begins, God begins with a single human. He begins with the man, Adam. But after placing Adam in the garden, God says that it is not good that the man should be alone. And if you're reading through the biblical text, that phrase, not good, should stand out because it's different than what we've been hearing all along, right? Everything God makes... the the light, the sky, the sea, the land, the animals, the fish, everything that he makes, it says, "It it is good. It is good, 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 it is good. All over and over and over again, it is good. Then he makes the man, puts him in the garden, says, it is not good. Something that God has made at this point, for some reason, is not good. And so he says, I will make a helper who is compatible to him. So he puts the man in a deep sleep, uh, removes from his side, forms the woman. And then like a father walking his daughter down the aisle on her wedding day, God brings the woman to the man. And the man sees her and is ecstatic. He says, at last, After seeing all the animals pass by and recognizing that not a suitable helper can be found for him, there is nothing in this world that is like a human being. He's sitting in his aloneness. God brings the woman to him and he says, finally, finally, somebody that's like me, that can relate to me, that can understand me. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is actually a song. The first words a human being speaks in the Genesis account, is a song, and every musical ever made was born in this moment. He sees the love of his life and just starts singing at the joy of who this is. And then the author interprets for us what's happening. We don't always get this in the Bible. We don't always get the author saying, Let me tell you what's happening here. But here we do. He's kind. To us. And he says, All of this is happening. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so, since the beginning of time, literally, from the beginning of time, all cultures, almost all cultures, there are some exceptions, but almost all cultures throughout world history have some sort of institution of marriage. Isn't that fascinating? As different as our cultures are, across continents, as different as our belief systems are, aside from a very rare few, every culture, almost every culture across the world throughout history has practiced some sort of institution of marriage. Though they take on different customs throughout time and throughout the world, it all begins here with the creation of marriage. So the first thing I want us to see about marriage is that marriage is God's idea. Marriage was not a human invention, although we have lots of ideas about marriage, but marriage is God's idea. He created it. If you create something, if you make something, no one else can tell you how you should use that thing, what you should do with that thing. You made it, it's yours, you get to do what you want with it. And so God created marriage. It's his idea. And so he gets to define it. This is one thing that frustrates me about modern art. It has a creator. Somebody made it. And I just want to know what that person says it represents. And I'm told, well, what does it mean to you? I I don't care what it means to me. Tell me why you made it. Modern art is frustrating. Sorry for you artists here who just look at me as some Cretan because I don't understand what it's all about. I'm sure it's beautiful, but I don't get it. God creates marriage. He has an intention. He has a purpose. He has a meaning. He has a definition for it. Culture can try to define it differently and governments can enforce marriage policy however they want. But for the church, biblical marriage must be defined by the word of God. Amen? So I want to offer... The definition of biblical marriage. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man and one woman. I'm going to break this down, but marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man and one woman. It's lifelong. Okay? Okay. Till death do us part is not just some like poetic thing that makes us sound romantic. We mean it. Till death do us part. The two have become one flesh. Jesus said, reflecting on this passage, what God has brought together, let not man separate. Okay, this is God's doing. He's made one flesh, don't tear it apart. Don't tear it apart. There are biblical allowances for divorce and Jesus does talk about that, but they are by far the exception and and the minority and not the rule. In its ideal, marriage was created by God to be a lifelong monogamous covenant between one man and one woman. It's it's monogamous, right? That That means there's only one of them. Right? You don't have multiple marriages. You have one marriage. Now, our culture hates monogamy because variety is the spice of life. We don't like the idea of being limited in Anyway, just yesterday, I was at my nephew's birthday party and I was talking to a, a young man there who was considering marrying the, the, the woman that he was dating and, and uh, found out that my wife and I had celebrated 15 years and he goes, gosh, 15 years with the same person. How do you just like commit your, your whole life to, to, to one person? See, the world teaches that familiarity breeds contempt. Okay. But in biblical marriage, familiarity breeds intimacy. Okay. Familiarity, knowing one another, knowing and being known in that sense that that word in this passage, naked and unashamed, it's not just talking about something physical, but it's talking about being exposed, being known, being understood. And so the better you know someone, the better you can love someone. And the better they know you, the better they can love you. Sometimes the devil lives in our technology. (laughs) The better you know someone, the better they know you the better you can actually love the other person and experience the love of that other person. I told him, I said, you know, I feel more love from and for my wife after 15 years than the day we met, more safety and security and, and, and not just comfort, but joy in our marriage. And the day we got married, every single day, the more she knows about me, the more I know about her, all the junk that she knows about me, all of the, you know, on our wedding day, everything's just idealistic. And it's like, this person's never gonna hurt me. And then 15 years later, we wake up and we're like, no, I've done my fair share of hurting. And she still chooses me. Tell me that's not better than a love that has no knowledge. Familiarity breeds intimacy. So the world wants to. I was on a, I was on a, a train one day and I heard these two gentlemen talking and one of them literally says, Man, I gotta get me some strange. And he was talking about he needed to be with a new woman. And I'm like, That sounds awful. I don't want anything strange. Like that's, that's, that's weird. Why are you talking like this? But that's the, what the world says. The world tells you that the only good intimacy is exciting, dangerous intimacy, strange intimacy. It's terrifying. When I talk about the love that is possible, in a marriage that's committed to one another. It's not just my story. There, There is nothing special about me and my wife. But our marriage is special because that's the way we've treated it. And if you treat... Your marriage, if you regard your marriage as something significant, special, a gift from God, made by God for you, things change. Things can start to change. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant. Okay, there is contractual marriage in our world. Our our culture practices contractual marriage, but a covenant is not a contract. See, a contract is designed to protect two individuals. If we enter a contract with one another and I don't uphold my end of the bargain, you are free from your obligation to the contract. But that is not the case with a covenant. A covenant is designed not to protect two individuals, but to protect the one flesh union. It's saying regardless of your ability to keep the requirements of the covenant, I am still committed to the covenant. I am still committed to the union. Okay, this is very different than the way the world treats marriage. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous covenant between a man and a woman. Look, if you're here and and you're not a Christian, okay, it is not my intention to tell you how to live, to tell you how to live your life, to tell you what you should or shouldn't do with your body. It's not my intention to tell you who you should or should not marry. The culture is gonna practice marriage differently than the Bible teaches. And honestly, I have no intention of telling you how to live. I have every intention of telling you about Jesus. And if you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we can talk about Jesus and his lordship over marriage. But if you're here today and you're like, I want to know what all of this is about, just know, I have not been called to the world to tell people how to live their lives. I've not been called to Congress to write legislation about marriage. I have been called to the church, the redeemed people of God, to tell them what the word of God says about their lives. And if you don't identify with that, I love you. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's continue to dialogue. Again, reach out, okay? My time is available for you as well. But if you are a Christian, then it is absolutely my job to tell you what the Bible says about marriage and all things. And if Reality Carpenteria is your church, then it is certainly my job to tell you what your pastors here are going to hold you accountable to. And so this might be difficult for many to receive, but according to scripture, marriage is God's idea, then he gets to define it. And so from here on out, when I use the word marriage... I am referring to a lifelong monogamous covenant between a man and a woman. So marriage is God's idea. It's created by him and therefore defined by him. And so marriage is created according to God's purpose. Marriage was created for a purpose. God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. Everything else was good that God had made, But this is not good. And remember, that should shock us. That should call our attention because we're reading something different than what has been repeated all along. And we need to ask the question, why? Why was the man's aloneness not good? Was he just lonely? So he needs a conversationalist, someone to talk to? That can't be the case because he walked with God in the garden. Okay, he wasn't alone. He wasn't lonely. God was with him. Okay, was there too much work to do, right? He has to rule and subdue the earth to work and keep the ground in the garden. Was there too much work to do? And so he needs a coworker. He's got all eternity to do it. That's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. Some simply think that uh, it's because he can't produce children alone. And so it's not good for him to be alone because he can't produce children. I think that might be part of it, but we can't reduce it to that because that reduces a woman to being a womb. And ladies, you are far more than a child bearer. Then why is it not good for the man to be alone? Why was everything else good, but he wasn't? If you go back and and we talked about this a little bit ago when we were going through the the days of creation, that for God to declare something good meant that it functioned as designed. So the light functioned as designed and dark. The land and sea functioned as designed. Everything that God made functioned as designed, but this man cannot function as designed. And so we need to ask the question, what was he designed to do? Okay, yeah, he was designed to work and keep the ground. He was designed to rule and subdue. But those tasks were to reflect the true purpose that he was made, the true purpose for which he was made. And the purpose that humanity was made was to image God. He was made, humanity was made in the image of God. He was made to reflect God, And so marriage was created so that humanity could reflect the image of God so that creation could look at the way a man and woman live together in marriage and say, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. And so apart from another human being, Adam was not able to reflect the image of God properly. Now, let's reverse engineer this. Okay, if humanity is made in the image of God and is supposed to image God, but humanity can't image God apart from another human being, then what does that say about God? It says that God has an incredibly complex identity. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, we understand that God is a community of persons in and of himself. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God is a community. He has perfect relationship and unity within the persons of the Godhead. And we are made in the image of God and can't reflect that apart from interactions with another human being. And so if we're going to adequately reflect God's image to the world, We need to be operating in community, in submission to God. And so this is important because even though in this text we see the creation of marriage, Adam's primary need was not a spouse. Okay? All the single people. Listen up. Adam's primary need was not a spouse. Adam's primary need was community. The reason it was not good for him to be alone is not because he needed a wife, but because he needed community. He needed somebody like him, like the father, son, and spirit are each like each other. He needed somebody like him in order to reflect the one in whose image he was made. And so God makes all the animals to pass by just to make sure Adam knows how alone he is, so that when God provides what he needs, he's ready to rejoice. Sometimes when you feel like you are in need, it's easy to think that God doesn't know, God doesn't see. God's not aware of my need. How do I make God aware of my need? But God knows what you need better than you know what you need. And he will cause you at times to sit in your need so that you become aware of the need. So when he provides for your need, you are ready to rejoice at his gift. And so God causes the animals to pass by and not a suitable helper was found for the man And God brings the woman to the man. What he needs is community, but our God is a God who is able to do far more abundantly anything that we can ask or imagine. And so the way he provides for community is so much cooler than the way any of us would provide for community. He could have cloned Adam. He could have made another man. But he makes a woman. And all God's people said, amen. He makes a woman. He makes somebody like him, but different from him, not just to be in community with him, but so that they can build community together. And so God provides for the man in such a beautiful, miraculous, generous way. And he gives him a spouse So this means our primary need is not a a relationship, it's not a, a spouse, it's not a different spouse, it's not a better spouse. Our primary need, married or unmarried, is community. We need to be in community. You need a group of people who are committed to living in light of the image of God together. And when the world sees believers living in submission to Jesus and on mission with one another, they will be able to say, this is what God is like. You will image God. You'll reflect God. You will be a mirror of God that the world will look at the church living in loving community in submission to God in unity and love with one another and say that, that is what God is like. That's what this is saying. So shameless plug, we're launching home groups at the end of the month join a home group. So God provides community for Adam, but he does so in a special way. So he puts him in this this sleep. He does this spiritual surgery on him and brings the woman to the man and he rejoices. And so marriage, and by extension, family, are the way that God provides for community. And so marriage and family are the foundation of human communities across culture. There's a reason this lines up across cultures because it was the creation ideal. It was what began in the beginning. That's why we can look at all these other cultures in the world and say, that looks like something familiar. That looks like something familiar. That looks like something familiar. It's because it's all drawn from something familiar. God's work in creation. And so the text continues. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. it says that they were naked and not ashamed. And so this leads us to another aspect of the image of God in marriage, that it's not only a foundation for human community, but also marriage is the appropriate context for human intimacy. It's foundation for community, but it's also the appropriate context for human intimacy. And this goes far beyond just physical intimacy. To be one flesh means to live as one life, to live as one organism, to live as one entity. All of life is inseparable from the life of this other person. But intimacy doesn't just happen naturally. It takes work. And so intimacy is the result of two people Sacrificing their own desires to serve the good of the other. Intimacy results when two people sacrifice their own desires to serve the good of the other. In a relationship like this, both people receive what they need and neither one of them takes it from the other person. Does it make sense? Each person receives what they need in the relationship, but they're not being greedy. They're not using the other person. They're not treating them as a commodity, someone that exists for their desires, their good, their pleasures, but both people sacrifice their desires to serve the good of the other person and in so operate in this one flesh unity. This kind of intimacy requires deep knowledge of the other person. You need to know them and their needs if you're going to serve their needs. And so this does transcend physical intimacy. To be naked and unashamed is more than just physical. It's to be truly seen and truly known. Adam and Eve knew one another. They knew each other completely. Nothing was hidden from one another. There was no reason to hide at this point. There was no sin. They were unashamed. They were innocent and pure pure. And in the same way that human community is to reflect the image of God, this intimacy in marriage reflects something about God. You are fully known and fully loved by the Creator. marriage is a picture of that. The New Testament book of Ephesians chapter five says that marriage is is a mystery and that it refers to Christ's relationship with his church. The way a husband and wife are to love serve, and sacrifice for one another is to be a picture of the way that Jesus loves, serves, and sacrifices for the church. And so not only are people supposed to look at the community of God and say that this is what God is like, but they are to look at godly marriages and be able to say this is what the gospel is like. This is what the good news of is like, in the way that these people love and serve one another, in the way that they forgive one another, in the way that they're committed to one another and support one another and lay down their lives for one another. This is how Christ treats his bride, the church. People have, have, have asked me often, especially when I was, uh, my, my wife and I got married when we were in college. And so people that I was in college with and when I was beginning in ministry, we had a very young congregation at Reality LA. And so people would always come and ask that, how did you know that Katie was the one that you wanted to marry? And I would always say the same thing. when When I realized that I would be happier making her happy than I would be just pursuing my own happiness, that's how I knew that she was the one. And people would all like, oh, that's okay. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Here's the problem with that. It wasn't true. I didn't know it wasn't true. But since then, I've realized just how selfish I am. And just how much I want to work for my happiness. And so intimacy is not easy. It's not easy, and it transcends the normal things that we think about. In my house, doing the dishes is intimacy. Okay? It is laying down my life <laughs> for the good of what my wife needs, which is for there to be no more dishes in the sink. Okay, This transcends the things that we normally think about. And people are to see the way husbands and wives sacrifice for each other and go, that person just gave up what they wanted for another person? We don't see that in the world. It's supposed to be a picture of what Jesus has done for us, that he has laid down his life to give us what we truly need. Church, this is the reason that marriages need to be protected. The institution of marriage, as well as our individual marriages. Because think about it. If marriage is the foundation of community, where the image of God is put on display, and marriage is the context for intimacy, where Christ's love for the church is put on display, then where do you think God's enemy is going to focus his efforts? If I can slander God... And, and and tell the world that God is different than he is. And if I can make the gospel look powerless, just by destroying this marriage, easy. I don't got to do all this other stuff. I just have to destroy marriage. I just have to tear people apart, make them selfish. And all of it, like, like pulling the, the the can out of the bottom of the can pyramid, it all just comes crumbling down. Satan hates marriage. If he can destroy it, he can destroy human society and slander the image of God. Do you recognize what is at stake when we talk about this? So much more than your happiness is at stake. There are cosmic implications Now, God is not unconcerned with your happiness, okay? He is not unconcerned with your happiness, but he is more concerned about holiness. And if holiness makes you unhappy, then you need to rethink your relationship with Jesus. He has called us to be holy. He has made us holy by his blood. And knowing what he has done and what awaits us in eternity because of what he has done brings something greater than happiness. It brings joy that cannot be thwarted by circumstances. We can't redefine marriage. We can't reject marriage as evil as or antiquated as many people in our culture do. We can't abandon marriages either because what it tells the world is that when God's people displease him, he will abandon us and go find somebody else. And that's not the way our God is. That is a lie. Now, please hear me. This does not mean that every uh, divorce is sin. It does not mean that every divorce is sin or that every divorced person is living in sin, but it does mean that marriage is worth fighting for and it is more worth fighting for than you might think it is. Marriage is worth fighting for and there are too many people who have given up the fight and become pawns in the enemy's scheme to destroy something so much bigger than you and I. There's too much at stake. Do not give up the fight. And so some of the attacks on marriage are more obvious, like redefining and infidelity and divorce culture and all of these things. But there is an attack on marriage that I believe is far more subtle and far more pervasive in the church. And I think it's the number one issue facing marriages in the church. I think the number one issue facing marriages in the church is that marriage has become an idol. An idol is anything that any good thing that becomes a God thing. It's no longer something we receive from God, but we treat it as though it were God. And this happens with marriage all the time. And we will quote this passage to justify it. Well, it's not good that I should be alone. And God has made this helpful helper, suitable for me, just for me, to complete me. And we'll quote this and we'll think that this tells us that we should be completed in our marriage. And it might seem to follow logically until we remember where we are in the story. See, all of this took place before sin. Before sin, Adam was imperfect. He was incomplete. He needed somebody to complete him, to complete the image of God in humanity. Eve also is incomplete. There are two halves of the same humanity that need to be brought together. But now on this side of sin, it's not just that I am imperfect and, or am incomplete and that my wife is incomplete, but there's all kinds of sin now in the way that keeps us from uniting in that one flesh union, that intimacy. that oneness. And so it's not just that something needs to be done about the half of me that is missing, the better half of me that is missing, some might say, but something needs to be done about the sin that keeps us from connecting as a one flesh union. And so we look to one another and we expect to be completed by that person, fulfilled by that person, perfected by that person. And we end up taking the weight of responsibility that only God can carry. And we put it on our spouse and we put it on our marriage and it crushes them because as wonderful as your spouse might be, I promise you, they are a terrible God. They are not a good God. And they cannot do for you what only God can do for you. And so Adam and Eve were incomplete, but they were perfectly incomplete and therefore perfectly compatible. And so they were able to provide what is lacking. But in this world corrupted by sin, we need more than intimacy with another person. We need what only God can provide. And so if you are looking for another human being to receive from another human being what only God can provide, it will be just like Adam watching all of the animals passing by. Not a suitable helper will be found for you. If you are expecting the perfect spouse, if you are expecting someone that can accomplish for you what only God can find for you, and you are expecting that in another human person, then not a suitable helper will be found for you. Again, this transcends marriage. If you are looking to anything... To provide for you what only God can provide for you. If you're looking to career, if you're looking to relationships, if you're looking to status, if you're looking to power, if you're looking to money, if you are looking to lifestyle and recreation and and and, and whatever it is, to family, to children, if you are looking to anything to provide for you what it was not intended to provide for you, not a suitable helper will be found for you in that thing. You will continue to be left wanting. You will continue to be left empty. You will continue to be left incomplete. And so we need a helper as Adam needed a helper, but it is not in a spouse. Jesus is the helper that you need. Okay. This word helper is the Hebrew word "azer," And it doesn't mean sidekick doesn't mean little buddy. It doesn't mean that, 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 that the, the helper, the woman to Eve or Jesus, or the woman to Adam or Jesus to us, it doesn't mean that they are subordinate. Subordination has nothing to do with the word azer. A helper is someone that fills up what is lacking in a person. And the number one person who is consistently referred to as humanity's azer, helper throughout the Bible is God. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my azer come from? My azer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The only one who is able to do for us what we need in order to be complete is Jesus. A spouse will not save you. A new spouse will not save you. A different spouse will not save you. Okay, your spouse becoming the perfect man or woman will not save you. Money can't save you. A new job can't save you. Listen to me. The perfect theology of marriage will not save your marriage. Only Jesus can do that. My words... And my theology and what you believe about marriage is not going to save your marriage. You need a helper. You need God to come in and breathe life into what has been destroyed. He is the true and better helper that we need because in Christ, you can be fully known and fully loved. The intimacy that you need, the intimacy that you long for to be known and loved is only available in Jesus. He knows you. He knows the things that you wish he didn't know about you. And he loves you. And he, and he approves of you by the, the blood of Jesus. He he affirms you. He delights in you. You are fully known and you are fully loved. And he invites you to be united to him in covenant. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even when you sin, even when you feel like you've displeased him, he doesn't bail. Okay, he is faithful to you. Regardless of what you're wrestling with. He sacrificed himself to give you what you truly need. This is why the church is called the bride of Christ. In the New Testament, we are called his bride because just as Eve was taken from the body of Adam while he slept, the church was formed from the broken body of Jesus when he lay in the tomb after he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And when he rose from the dead, the breath of life was breathed into our lives, was breathed into us. And when the Holy Spirit fell, we were empowered to live a life that honors Jesus, that's united to Jesus, that glorifies Jesus. We are the bride of Christ because we were formed from Christ's own broken body. And so he looks at you He calls you the beloved. Look, whatever discomfort you're feeling right now, whatever emotions you're feeling right now, whatever whatever fear you are feeling right now, because of what Jesus has done for you, you, what you don't have to feel is shame. Okay, grief is something that we feel when someone wrongs us. Guilt is something that we feel when we believe we have wronged somebody else, but shame is what we feel when we believe there is something wrong with us. And let me tell you that in Christ, there is nothing wrong with you. Past, present, or future, you do not need to be ashamed because his blood covers your shame. And in Christ, God is well-pleased in you. So you can bring whatever you're wrestling with. You can bring whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're confused by, whatever you're angry with. You can bring that to the Lord and not hide, not try to cover it up and put it away, but say, God, I want to talk about this because I don't get this. And he doesn't say, what do you mean you don't get this? No, he doesn't shame you. He covers you. He rescues you. He forgives you. He loves you. He redeems you. He empowers you. He cleanses you. You are beloved to him. So this is why we need to fight to save our marriages because marriage shows the world how beautiful Jesus is. It is his design. The world is supposed to look at marriage and see the image of God. And so when your marriage gets tough, and church, I'm not naive. I know what difficult marriages look like. I know what I'm talking about. I know what kinds of tragedy marriages encounter. I have seen the depth of tragedy and the worst of marital trauma. And I have seen God miraculously redeem the marriages that surrender to him. I have seen the worst case scenarios become marriages far more beautiful and joyful than anyone ever thought imaginable. Because Jesus entered in, did what only he could do so a husband and wife can look at one another finally with clear eyes. And have proper expectations and love for one another, and God has redeemed and forgiven and brought wholeness. I have seen couples more in love after affairs than they were before. And I promise you, if you surrender to Jesus, surrender your life to Jesus, surrender your marriage to Jesus, I promise you that he can do miracles in your life that you never thought imaginable. And he will do it because his reputation is at stake. Because he wants people to look at your marriage and see how beautiful and how wonderful and how full of grace he is. He can perform miracles in your marriage. Too often we live like our, our marriages are like a Venn diagram. You remember those, the two overlapping circles and, and each one of us is a circle and then we're overlapped a little bit in our marriage. But if that's how you treat your marriage, then your life outside of the overlap will constantly pull you apart from each other. And so when I say surrender your lives, I'm saying surrender everything that is outside right now of your relationship with Jesus, everything that is outside of your relationship with your spouse, let it die to you. Let it go, hold it with open hands, stop clinging to it so that you can experience life fully united to Jesus. And so your spouse can experience life fully united to Jesus. And guess what? If you are united to Jesus and they are united to Jesus, then you will experience unity one with another. You must surrender all of those things that you're hanging onto that will tear you apart and find your satisfaction in Jesus and in Jesus alone. This goes for all of us. It's not just marriage. Not just the married people, not just those in difficult marriages, all of us, each and every one of you, surrender to the helper and experience Christ provide for you what nothing else in this world can. It starts with surrender. Heavenly Father, we are desperate before you. We are desperate for you to move in our lives, for you to save us from our sin, to save us from our, our, uh, the, the way we interfere with the world seeing your image in us, Lord. And we are in desperate need for you to heal marriages. And I believe, Jesus, you are the only one that can do that. And so God, in this time now, would you just stir up in us the courage to surrender, the courage to lay our lives down at your feet and to receive from you what you desire for us. May our satisfaction and our joy be found wholly and completely in you. And may we see our marriages, our spouses, as gifts from you, to us as the one who is the lover of our souls. God, I have a prayer that Carpenteria, Lord, when they experience, when people in this town experience difficulty in their marriage, that they would know where to go for help. That they would know, they would see the marriages in all of the churches in this town and say, for some reason, the, 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 the Christians get it right. I've seen their marriages come back from the dead. Lord, may, may your people in this town be known as where others can go to find care and healing for their marriages. But it starts here. As we find care and healing for our souls, as we find care and healing for our own marriages, Lord, would you be glorified? Would you be seen in it all? We ask it, Lord, for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.